You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today I'm going to be telling you guys about the mainline murders. If you're from Chelsea and my side of PA, you've probably heard of it if you're anywhere close to King of Prussia because it's kind of a big deal. But I am going to tell this story in two parts. And in this first part, I'm kind of going to introduce you to the characters in the story. I call them characters. But this ca- I feel like this case is perfect because you're saying that it's in King of Prussia, but like Susan was found in our area. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, you're right. So, yeah, weird. It's um, a perfect mix of us. For real. In a creepy way. <laughs> Just like you're um, that missing kid reincarnate. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I say I'm like introducing you to the characters, but like it's hard to remember that they're real people sometimes because this story just kind of plays out like a movie or a novel. So try and remember that this shit really happened. (laughs) So as part of my research for this story, I read Echoes in the Darkness by Joseph Wamba, which is a pretty well-known book if you're familiar with the case. And I also read Engaged to Murder by Loretta Schwartz Noble. Um, They're both very informative, and I suggest both to you if you're interested in the entire story of the mainline murders. There's no way I could touch on every aspect of the story in the small amount of time we have on the podcast, even in multiple parts. But the details are what really makes this case interesting and so enthralling. So definitely check those titles out. Um, Personally, I liked Engaged to Murder more. I thought that the author was a little more respectful of everyone involved as opposed to Joseph Wamba, who came out like a little judgy of people that didn't really need to be judged. I mean, if you read read them, you'll understand what I mean. But like that could just be my sensitive millennial preference. Um, It's also worth noting that Wamba was writing this book during the investigation before any arrests were even made. So it's been suggested that he may have inserted himself further into the case than he should have. But anyway, let's get into it. So like I said, I'll start by introducing the people closest to the case. um, So you can sort of get an idea of who they were and what made them tick. And just kind of help the whole story make more sense. So Susan Reinert was born Susan Gallagher in Ridgeway, PA to William and Jane Gallagher. She earned a bachelor's degree in English from Grove City College, where she met Kenneth Reinert. They married in 1965, and Susan went on to earn a master's degree in English from Penn State in 1966. She's described as a quiet, thoughtful person. She had dark hair, wore glasses, and her wardrobe is frequently described as somewhat frumpy, which seems like rude, (laughs) but I'm just trying to paint a picture here. Like, honestly, I think of her as looking like a stereotypical school teacher, like in this, especially in the seventies, which is what she would eventually become. Are you calling me frumpy? Are you a teacher in the (laughs) seventies? They didn't have cyber teachers in the 70s. Fair. <laughs> my mom loves that word. So to hear it, it just makes me think of my mom. Frumpy. Frumpy. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so after Susan graduated, the couple moved to Sacramento, California because of Kent's Air Force career. They moved multiple times, even living in Puerto Rico for a few years before settling in the Philadelphia region in 1971. Susan established herself as an English teacher at Upper Marion High School, where she was well-liked by students and most of the staff. She also supervised multiple clubs and groups at the school and was described as a passive person, quiet, private, and enjoyed books and films. So Susan and Ken had two children. Karen was born in 1968 and Michael was born in 1969. Unfortunately, Susan and Ken's marriage began to crumble shortly after their move to the Philadelphia area, and in 1974, they separated, finalizing the divorce in 76. Apparently, the divorce was fairly amicable. It seems as if both parents really had the well-being of the children in mind and didn't want to drag them through a messy divorce proceedings, which is great. More people should take note of that. (laughs) But Susan had the majority of custody, but the children saw Ken on a regular basis. Susan became active in the group Parents Without Partners, and she and the children resided in Ardmore, which is on the main line, and the kids spent every other weekend and some holidays with Ken. So the last time Susan and the children were seen alive was on June 22nd, 1979. I feel like an idiot and you're probably going to explain this later. So if you are, you can tell me to shut up. What is the main line? (laughs) It's um, an area outside of Philadelphia. It's literally like a line of affluent um, towns that kind of lead into it. Okay. I want to say that most of the people that I know, they refer to it as the towns along 76 from Philly, if that makes sense. Yeah. From Philly coming out towards 422. That's like the best way. But now as like the area is getting so populated, I feel like it's coming closer like into like 422, if that makes sense. Like the game of pressure. Well, it makes sense to us for sure. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're broke bitches, but... Um, yeah, that's the area that I would describe it as. Yeah, it's like slowly creeping out like further from Philly because they're trying to revive, I guess, some of the cities that are further out. But Ardmore's pretty solidly always been a part of it. Well, I want to say that we used to be like a lot of like farms and like open space. Now we're on top of each other. So like Phoenixville is, I think, one of the top cities in the U.S. that has as many breweries on one block as it does. So, oh my gosh, yep. somebody's so rich people that, that like to drink that, but <laughs> and send their kids to private schools. Yeah, it's just That's... affluent areas outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, whatever. So the next person um, okay. who's big in this case is William Bradfield Jr., So he was born in Colorado on February 11th, 1933 to William Sidney Bradfield Sr. and Nora E. Bradfield. Um, Her maiden name was Watson. His father, a business executive, would eventually relocate the family to the Philadelphia region. Bradfield began working at Upper Marion High School in 1963 and ended up becoming the head of the English department. He established himself as an influential force in the community, and being 6'3 with blue eyes, he had many admirers. So I just want to add Alexa Play Womanizer by Britney Spears. (laughs) Because this guy's... This is nuts. So Bradfield had been married twice. One was a common law marriage, and the other Bradfield described as a spiritual marriage. I don't exactly know what he meant by that, but 
I guess okay. just that it wasn't totally official. Like not legal within the state, but maybe took place within a church or something like that. Or even as kind of like they had a spiritual connection or something like that. Because okay. he was, was just going to say he was super um, pretentious. <laughs> you don't say. So it could be something like that for sure. So he had Fair. three sons between those two marriages. And the trail of women this guy had following him around is like unreal. So Susan Myers, another teacher at Upper Marion, had known Bradfield since 63 when he began teaching at the high school. They actually moved in together in 1974, um, which they tried to keep under wraps. But among the teachers there and everything, it was pretty well known, I believe. So they lived as if they were in a serious relationship with a joint bank account and everything. But Bradfield uh, was a less than faithful partner. Despite, Shock. Yeah, right. Seriously shocking. Despite this, Susan Myers was under the impression that they would eventually get married. They were still living together when Susan Reinert's life became tangled with Bradfield's. And also... It's kind of confusing that there's two Susans here. So I'll try to always say them with their last name just to keep them straight. Is the first Susan the spiritual marriage partner or is she a third one? No. So Susan Reiner is the one that ends up being murdered. Susan, no, no, no. Susan Myers. Susan Myers. Um, they weren't married ever, actually. She's just like another one. Like after these wives... Okay, that's what I meant. Like, after the common law and the spiritual marriage, this was number three, and then Susan Reiner is number four. Yeah, but it's really hard to number because... (laughs) Womanizer, womanizer. There's just so many of them. (laughs) So, sort of. Um, But yeah, she was under the impression that they were going to get married. Um, but Susan Myers was a member of what I've come to think of as Bradfield's posse, which is a group of upper Marion teachers that saw Bradfield as a friend and kind of like a leader and they, but they were just kind of actually just unwittingly doing his bidding. They were all pretty impressionable. So then there was Wendy Ziegler, a former student of Bradfield's that he had been seen basically since she turned 18 They met up at hotels sometimes to um, cuddle and like, I'm (laughs) not even trying to be funny. Like apparently Bradfield was really not that into sex. Oh my gosh. Which makes his womanizing ways even more bizarre. Why do you need hotels? I don't know. They pop up like multiple times when, you know, you're learning about these women in his life that they would get hotel rooms, but he really, it wasn't about the sex for him. Interesting. Allegedly, but you know, the more you kind of get to know his character, the more it makes a little bit more sense. But yeah, I don't, hotels for cuddling weren't really necessary, but I guess too, because if you want to keep these relationships separate and you want the women to not really know about each other, I guess even if you're just going to cuddle, you need some space to do that. But yeah, don't worry. It'll get weirder. Oh, <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. Okay. 
So she was completely devoted to him and believed, as Susan Myers did, that they would eventually be married. So I, I could go on among, with all of these women, but these are two of the women that found themselves questioning everything when they ended up testifying against him in court. I feel like this story has a number of stereotypical characters in it, except Principal Jay Smith. So just wait for it. William Bradfield or Bill Bradfield, as they called him, um, sounds like the archetype for the bearded professor that like smokes a pipe and pretentiously quotes poets <laughs> and like draws the attention of his female students. Like, I feel like you can picture it in your head and you're right. <laughs> Come cuddle with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's weird. worse somehow. I don't know. <laughs> Like the exception was that he wasn't a professor. He was a high school teacher. And honestly, it kind of seemed like guys were just as obsessed with him. Like he just had this way about him, like magnetic personality, I guess. People were just drawn to him. He was very charismatic, you know, like a serial killer. (laughs) Maybe the high for him was just the chasing of somebody. Honestly, maybe, maybe. But I think he also kind of just needed to be loved, which is like so fucking depressing. But yeah, I'm sure that had something to do with it, too. He was just lonely. But that leads me into another member of his quote unquote posse. And that's Vincent Valaitis, who was another English teacher at Upper Marion. Um, He also happened to live in the same rental property as Bradfield and Susan Myers. Um, So Bradfield and Susan Myers, they lived upstairs and Vincent lived downstairs and Bradfield kind of took him under his wing as a sort of like mentee. He was like a really meek man. He was deeply religious and he was the kind of person that didn't want to cause trouble for anybody. He had a sort of like nervous energy about him and he was like a little theatrical. Um, So (laughs) Wendy Williams had a show called Death by Gossip which I knew nothing about until I was just like <laughs> Googling the things that I could watch about this story. And it was actually the case covered in the pilot episode and Vince was on it. And if you watch it, you'll kind of see what I mean about like the nervous energy. Like you just, he was like hyper, but I mean, he was overall like, seems like a good guy that just caught up in Bradfield's bullshit, like a whole bunch of other people. So He was just very impressionable, I would say. So, which is kind of who Bill liked to surround himself with. The next guy kind of rounded out Bradfield's posse, Chris Pappas. He was a former student of Bradfield's and frequently substituted for teachers at Upper Marion. Um, And I don't know like a ton about him, but he'll definitely come up later in the story as I'm explaining everything. So just so you know who he was. And before we move on, I want to revisit Susan Myers for a moment. Um, I had mentioned her as one of Bill Bradfield's adoring lovers, even though they didn't move in together until 74, they had started dating shortly after meeting in 63. Um, so Bradfield had been stringing her along for a long time. And I think like maybe she was losing it a little bit. Like I can't blame her. Like the pair had even opened an art supply store in the Montgomery mall and it did not go well. That's such a weird part of the story to me too. Like it seems so random. They opened an art store in the mall. Right. (laughs) Two teachers. Like, yeah. And Vince was kind of like involved with it a little bit. 
I believe, but it really like kind of belonged to Bill and Susan Myers. It was called like Terra Art or something like that, but hmm. just I don't really know why. Like nothing is explained like that they were super crafty or anything like that, like why they would be interested in this particular venture, but I don't know. But they had it <laughs> um, and it wasn't going well. So with the stress of the store and Bradfield being a jackass, <laughs> Susan Myers was like not having the time of her life. On multiple occasions, she got into physical altercations with Susan Reinert, kicking her and calling her a bitch on school property. <laughs> cool. And that might sound like catfights originating in gossip, but Susan Myers admitted this to police during questioning after the murder of Reinert. So just <laughs> there are reenactments on Wendy Williams, too. Like, I love shitty reenactments. <laughs> Just her like kicking her in the shins and being like, bitch, stay away from Bill. <laughs> like in the teacher's lounge. It's so bizarre to me. And it's no, that's actually what happens at schools. It's teachers just get into fights. It's fine. It's what we do. Oh my God. Shin <laughs> guards. Yeah, for real. <laughs> um, but this isn't really an isolated incident when it comes to the women in Bill's life. Like it literally seems like he just drove them crazy. And they would do crazy shit to keep him. So I don't really know what it was about this guy. But um, okay, so here we are to J.C. Smith, who's I hate to call him like the crown jewel of the story. He's just really fucking weird. So he was the principal of Upper Marion High School for 12 years from 1966 to 1978. And I have no idea how. And once you learn more about him, you're going to wonder if the school board was like on acid the whole time or I don't know. But Jay Smith was born on June 5th, 1928 and raised in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, if you're not familiar with that area, like it's very close to Philly and it is a rough area. So and I don't know necessarily around this time um, when he lived there, but right now it's. It's really rough. Um, when he turned 18, he enlisted in the National Guard and six months later joined the Army. He was in the Army for about two years and spent time in Japan, but said that he never saw combat. He eventually became a colonel in the Army Reserves and was apparently being considered for general when things started to go a little south. So he married Stephanie in 1951, and the couple had two daughters. Um, Stephanie... Junior, I guess, was one of the daughters. And I believe the other one's name was Sherry, but she doesn't feature too much in this story. So he claims he was only unfaithful to his wife one time, just once in 28 years um, for like three years. <laughs> That's not once. <laughs> it was just oh. yeah, just one relationship for three years. Oy vey. Um, he claims the woman had an open marriage with her husband. But like Stephanie just wasn't as cool as them. So she didn't like it because I guess she was a bitch for not agreeing to an open relationship. So How dare she go into a monogamous marriage and expect monogamy? She's the worst. Hearing him talk about this because he gave um, interviews to the woman who wrote Engaged to Murder. And just because he was like, I was only unfaithful one time in those 28 years. 
And then you find out it was for three whole years and he like thought he was in love with this woman. And he was like, yeah, her husband knew the whole time. But for some reason, Stephanie had a problem with it. Wow, that's terrible. But also being unfaithful once in 28 (laughs) years is still not an accomplishment. Like your goal is zero. The goal is zero. Not I mean, I get things happen in relationships and, you know, not but like don't be bragging about well i only did this once for three years like no bro yes he was a great guy um so while he was out cheating on his wife she was developing cancer um and then unfortunately stephanie his wife died in august of 1979 so like i just feel so bad for this woman like jesus christ gosh So in 1966, Smith became principal of Upper Marion High School. His coworkers immediately started noticing strange behavior. So one of the weirdest things is he loved to fluster his staff. And sometimes when he was talking to them, he would like make up words just to confuse them. (laughs) Like why? I want to go back in time and like punch him. I know assault is not the way to handle things. Was he drunk? But if my principal started doing that kind of crap to me... I I would have many harsh words with him. Like, like being no. a teacher is hard enough trying to keep your shit together. But if your principal is just constantly like making up words and just trying to fuck with you. And if you see a picture of him, he does have a very punchable face. So you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so also he went on period long rants over the school intercom, which like obviously the students loved because they would literally take up an entire class period. So I guess he would start start with an announcement and then just like go off on a tangent and I don't really know what these are about but like I've never heard of any principal doing that before like I guess he could just kind of give a shit about education if he's gonna take up your whole class period I mean my periods were 45 minutes so like what the hell do you talk about for 45 one-sided too it's not like he's having a conversation (laughs) yeah monologuing for 45 minutes yep did he make up words then too Probably. Probably. Honestly. Why not do it then? So he would also wash his hands constantly, which I mean could be OCD. And this is probably the least weird thing about him, but it just it's just another thing in the list. <laughs> like what what's going on? He was preparing for 2020. For real. <laughs> but he's dead now. Spoiler. So didn't quite make it there. It was reported that quote unquote chemical smells were constantly coming from his office. And it was never kind of explicitly explained like what that was. I'm like, was he making meth in his office? I was going to say like OG breaking bad or just somehow I don't think so because I mean, that would be too easily figured out, but I don't know. I don't think he doesn't seem like he was smart enough to I'm wondering if it's cleaning stuff. If he has yeah. OCD that he's cleaning, washing his hands, I wonder if he's cleaning. Yeah. It could be cleaning that or it could be like really anything you could huff too, like paint. True. Or stuff like that. You could probably get that from like the art supply closet or something, but that's total speculation cuz I have no idea what it was. <laughs> um Oh, I missed this part, too, in the list. He would bring his own trash from home to throw it in the school dumpsters. Okay. He's being resourceful. 
He doesn't yeah. want to pay the trash bill. Like the picture that was painted was that trash bill's expensive. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> um, the picture that was painted was like he would show up to school really early and just kind of be taking like bags out of his car and kind of like just weirdly throwing them in the dumpster. Um, and it was on a regular basis. So it's not necessarily like tied to any of these like missing people or murders. It was just like something he did all the time. So, okay. Yeah. Um, he was sometimes caught in his underwear while on school property after hours. I know. <laughs> what? No. And even though I, I don't believe he ever did it while children were in the building. I mean, why the fuck are you? Pants suck. I get it. But like in public, you just have to. Well, some schools have washers and dryers. If he's cheap enough to bring his trash, is he cheap enough to wash his clothes there? That's fair. But I didn't. I feel like someone would have said something if there was washers and dryers there. I kind of feel like this is a whole risky business moment where like he's in his underwear and he's huffing shit in his in his office and sliding down the hallways in his socks. Like what the fuck? That's probably not too far off at all. You're probably right. Yeah. I mean, he's just like to chill in his underwear because pants are restricting. Um, some nicknames he was given over the years include the Prince of Darkness and Goat Eyes. <laughs> and goats are typically associated with like the devil yes. and demons and like Prince of Darkness. I mean, yep. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, so this is the boat most like is the best and most accurate description I've ever read. And I know that um, when they talked about this on My Favorite Murder, they like loved this. But Joseph Wamba writes in his book that Smith, quote, looked like an obscene phone call. Okay. <laughs> and it's so real. I will be sure to post a picture on our website because, yeah. You guys should probably Google it because he's he looks like he'd be weird. And I like I kind of hate to say that, but I don't know. It fits. Ooh. Yeah. So these are the main characters in our story. And like I said before, sometimes it's hard to remember that they're like real people because shit's wild. Um, But I'm going to start off with this short story. So on Saturday, August 27th, 1977, a sophomore from Villanova University was working at the Sears in St. David's, which is in the, um, on the main line, uh, working as a part-time cashier. When she returned from her lunch break that afternoon, an armed courier wearing a Brinks security uniform was standing by the counter. She ran to the back to grab the day's receipts, which among um, like all the checks and everything included over $34,000 in cash. And I mean, this was in the late 70s. So that's quite a bit. Um, The courier took the bags and signed the logbook, Carl S. Williams, and left. Five minutes later, the cashier was approached by another Brinks courier who told her that he had come for the day's deposits. And she was so confused. And she was like, but you are already here. So then... On Saturday, August 19th, 1978, almost a year later, a call was made to police about a man wearing a hood and skulking around the parking lot of the King of Prussia Mall. When the cop showed up, he was attempting to break into a vehicle. He was also carrying two loaded pistols. A search of the suspect's vehicle uncovered hella guns. 
like so many guns. It's <laughs> a great description. <laughs> but when I was reading it, I was like, Jesus, why do you need so many guns in your car? Because he's off the mall. Because apparently that's where people shoot people. Yeah. And well, he already was carrying two loaded pistols. Like, oh my God. Um, he also had homemade silencers and at least one of them was made from an oil funnel so he i mean he was crafty he probably should have had the art store like making silencers (laughs) from oil funnels god damn oh my god he also had bolt cutters and numerous illegal narcotics also found a brink security guard uniform the suspect was eventually identified as principal jc smith what (laughs) this weird hooded guy in the fucking parking lot of a mall was the principal of this school. Did he have pants on? <laughs> I believe he did. It wasn't mentioned that he didn't, but like, I assume he was trying to not draw attention to himself, but I, he's really bad at that. When I try to not draw attention to myself, I also have hella guns in my car <laughs> with narcotics. I just robbed them once. Yeah, just one time in 28 years. It was just one time. I robbed, but... <laughs> Also, he <laughs> robbed another Sears store, like, right around the time that he robbed the one in St. David. So, actually, twice. So, what's up with, like, August? I don't know. Why are... That's Just weird. as I was, like, typing out the final draft of this part, I was like, damn, August, all the time. Maybe... He has to go back to school. I was going to say, it's the end of summer, so he's running out of pay, and he needs, he needs a paycheck before the school year starts, because he's running low before he gets his next school year check. Well, it's weird, too, because, like, along with that, he seems to do these things, like, outside of school hours and seasons. Like, these were all Saturdays, so it's like, right. no, weekdays, I'm the principal of this school, and I have to be semi-responsible and sometimes wear pants, but... On the weekends, <laughs> you do you, buddy, I guess. <laughs> no, you don't do you. You kill people. That's not a good thing to do. Maybe. Well, well probably. <laughs> but it was just one, it was time. one time. God. 20. It might have been five people. Okay. But <laughs> listen. It was one gun. No, he had hella guns. It could have been a different gun for every person. There's nothing to say. And actually, Susan Reiner didn't die by gunshot. But we'll find out. So after that, police continued to search Smith's home because they had reason to. It's like, here's the Brink security uniform and hella guns. So where they discovered more than three pounds of marijuana, a stockpile wow. of illicit drugs, which he blamed on his drug addicted daughter, Stephanie, and her husband, who had been staying with them, more firearms and ammunition and reference material on bestiality. Ain't no. Yeah. So Smith denies allegations made by the media that he's some sort of sexual deviant. Like, how dare you? Like, he's just like any other man who has his fantasies. Okay, like using dogs as sexual surrogates. Yeah, that's normal. Just going to let that sink in. Um, There are some things like I kind of refuse to get into here on the podcast. But if you want to, you can actually find the titles to these books. It's I had to Google what the hell that word is and now i hopefully my phone doesn't which, send me all kinds which of horrible word? things bestiality yeah oh. didn't know mm-hmm. what don't that google meant. that yeah. don't google it 
stopped having sex with animals. I did. Okay? Just in case no one knows. <laughs> I just can't. I'm just so afraid you're going to Google it. End up on a list. Or see things that you don't want to see. Apparently I'm not this. Um, but maybe he just cuddles. Maybe he's like our other friend. He just cuddles. Uh, he just, he makes me feel like I need to take a shower. Like, honestly, telling you guys about him out loud, I feel like I have to go shower now. It's He's so gross. And there were letters that were seized that he sent people from prison and letters that he that were found like on his property to like other women and stuff. And the shit in these letters, like I I don't think that I'm a prude person, but ew, (laughs) like really graphic and gross and probably very out of touch with women's actual needs. I'm just going to say that, but like, (laughs) well, it was the seventies. Everyone was, that's fair. That's very fair, but it just makes my skin crawl. So interestingly, it was in the time between these two stories. So the burglary at Sears, which was actually, we'll find out was two burglaries at two different Sears. Um, And then this call to the police about him skulking around the parking lot. His daughter, Stephanie, and her husband, Edward Hunsberger, went missing. You know, the ones that he blamed the drugs the police found on, they had already been missing for a little while. So Stephanie, Stephanie and Edward were recovering heroin addicts and had been staying with Stephanie's parents. So Jay and Stephanie Sr., Um, And they were really working at getting clean and they were visiting a methadone clinic regularly. It was when they had not shown up for a while that the clinic called and inquired about them. And this is when Jay Smith told them that he was putting the couple through his own rehab treatment, which included Placidil, which is a tranquilizer that is no longer available. That sounds great. Was it like easily accessible? I doubt it. That was the chemicals in the office he was making Maybe, it. honestly. And I feel like he had to have access to weird shit. I mean, where's he getting this stuff? So, yeah. but yeah, it's a tranquilizer that's not even available anymore. So I'm assuming it yeah. probably wasn't great for you. Um, although this was obviously a lie because they were already missing. But so he was going to use this in his rehab treatment along with, quote, some really good pot. And that's what he told the worker from the clinic that called. And so, so he said they wouldn't be coming to the clinic anymore. So you're going to tranquilize them and then get them high. How do those two things work together? Well, you can't do heroin if you're tranquilized and passed out. Yeah, but then where does the pot come in? Just for extra added effect. Oh, okay. Maybe in between the tranquilizer doses. So you're just Just, a zombie the whole time. Just a lot of indica and just sleep. Yeah. Forever. Just all the sleep. You can't do heroin in your sleep. I don't think, to my knowledge, unless you're sleepwalking, shooting heroin. Anyway. The last time Stephanie and Edward were seen was on February 25th, 1978. It's crazy, though, that their welfare checks were being cashed for months after they were last seen. Well, of course. Yeah, weird. So I haven't been able to find 
much about who Stephanie and Edward actually were. It's sad that they're only mentioned as a couple of drug addicts whenever this story is told. Like, it's like they're a secondary thought. Susan Reinert was murdered, which is tragic, but isn't it weird that these two people connected to Jay Smith were also never seen again? Like, just kind of like added fuel instead of actual people that were missing. Right. Um, Keep in mind, they're still considered missing, um, and there's not much out there. Uh, or even though th- there's not much out there, they still had their own stories. It's just they're not told very much. Uh, Jay Smith told some people that the couple had run off to California to escape the debt of a drug dealer. And that's why he robbed the Sears to pay off the drug dealer. Yeah, exactly. Family comes first. Family. Something like that. But the thing is, he told Edward's mother that Edward ran away because there was a wor- warrant. Yeah. There was a warrant out for his arrest, but when his mother investigated, because of course you're going to look into that, she found no such warrant Hmm. and all of their belongings were left behind, including Stephanie's social security card, which was eventually found in her father's possession. What are the chances that she, they were in the trash bags that he threw out at the school? I mean, there's always a chance they... Still have never been found. And I mean, when you can find no trail of them, she like her social security, not that you have to take your social security card, but the fact that it was left behind and in his possession, like if you were going to move on, you would take your important documents. Right. Because you would need that to prove that you could work. I mean, and I'm assuming if they went on some sort of like bender or did something and, you know, overdosed and they both tragically ended up dead. Like, I'm sure that Jay Smith would have said something to like completely clear his name. Like, look, they killed themselves. I had nothing to do with it. But there's there's too much weird stuff. And I just think it's shady. He's cashing their checks. He's telling lies. It's benefiting him. Yeah. Right. That they're not there. Yeah. So he's not going to say that they died because he's not going to get their money. Yeah. And I guess right before they went missing, they had just gotten gotten a check, I believe. And, you know, if you were going to leave, why wouldn't you take that last bit of money? Cash that. But it was just there for him to cash. So, yeah, he's not a very savory character. So Jay Smith is charged with the burglary of the Sears store along with another one, like I had mentioned, at the Montgomery Mall around the same time period. So Smith's trial date is set. Then enter Bill Bradfield again. He suddenly remembers Jay Smith couldn't have committed those burglaries because during one of them, they had been in Ocean City, New Jersey together on the weekend that, you know, one of them had happened. And if he didn't commit one, then he obviously didn't commit the other one. And so he agreed to testify for the defense because, you know, they were together at the beach. How could he have done this? So he tells Sue Myers this, the Sue that he lives with. And she's like, yeah, that didn't happen. That. (laughs) Nope. They just wanted to cuddle in Ocean City. <laughs> She's like, you never went to the beach with Jay Smith. You you told me you don't even like really like the guy. Like you were not there. You're going to perjure yourself <laughs> for this person that you're like, he's weird. I don't really hang out with him. 
And he's like, shh, crazy lady. Yes, I did. (laughs) 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 You you just don't remember. (laughs) It sounds like Ben talking to me, honestly. Yes. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) Like king of gaslighting right here. He's just like, no, it that did happen. Yeah. But like, even though Sue Myers was like crazy for him and, you know, like head over heels, she was like, no, this definitely didn't fucking happen. So like, she knows that he's lying, but honestly, it didn't even matter in the end because Smith was convicted on all charges and he was ordered to surrender for his prison sentence on June 25th, 1979 in Harrisburg, which is a very important date. Um, so remember that, but that is where I'm going to end part one. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.